Hey everyone, this is Melissa from Horror Geek Life and welcome to the relaunch of the Horror Geek Podcast. So my guest this week is Matt Fulci. Matt is a comic collector and a horror fan who is part of the Pink Buzz podcast, which can be found on YouTube and kind of how I guess I found you, or I guess I knew you before then, before you joined Pink Buzz and then you joined Pink Buzz shortly after, right? Yes. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about the show that you come from? Of course. Basically, it's me and a few of my buddies, Johnny, Joey, and Goose, and kind of just go over a bunch of movies, music, comics, a variety of stuff, whatever we feel like discussing each week. Uh, We usually try to do at least two episodes a week, and you can find that on YouTube at Graphic Vandalism. Yeah, so I was just on your show, and I'm returning the favor, I guess, here. (laughs) But um, (laughs) I was just on the show, and we talked about Autopsy of Jane Doe, Mm -hmm. which is one of the scariest horror movies, in my opinion, that I've seen, recent horror movies, or I guess modern, I should say. And so we had a lot of fun talking about that. And we had a lot of fun in the after show, too, that thankfully wasn't aired. (laughs) (laughs) That was a lot of fun. But yeah, so, and you'll have a lot of comic creators coming up throughout the Mm -hmm. month of October. And I think I'm going back on as well to talk about Leslie Vernon. Yes. Which is another one that I love. It's so underrated, I think. So I'm excited to talk about that. I think it's starting to get its due. It's definitely flown under the radar a little too long, for sure. I know a lot of people that really love the film as well. For sure. You know, that mask, which I'll repeat this. So anybody listening to both shows, sorry. The mask is just one of my favorite masks in horror. I love it. And I know they were going to make a sequel a while back that was talked about. I, I interviewed the star of the movie, Nathan, years ago, and he had talked about it, but I haven't heard anything else. So I'm guessing it's in production hell. Yeah, I believe they tried to get a fundraiser thing started for it, and I don't think it met its goal, unfortunately. I do know that there's a Leslie Vernon action figure that's really awesome, and they ended up making the script for the sequel into a mini-series of comics. But I believe they sold out fairly quickly, so you can't buy them anymore unless you'll probably pay eBay prices for them. You know, I actually remember now that you mentioned the comic on the show because I had Mm -hmm. brought up the sequel there too, but I didn't know that. And I guess now I, (laughs) it doesn't really matter because I probably won't ever get my hands on one. We'll see. So we are going to jump into some news, um, some movie news, TV news here pretty soon. But before we do, I have a question. Have you read, watched, listened to anything that you want to tell our listeners about? I've recently been reading Providence by Alan Moore. Avatar Press just released the compendium for it, which collects the 12 single issues. It's basically the third chapter in his uh, HP Lovecraft love letter. I'm a pretty big Lovecraft fan and Alan Moore just nails this whole thing. It's it's a huge labor of love. Yeah, anybody that hasn't read Providence, I would highly recommend it, especially if you're an Alan Moore fan or HP Lovecraft fan. I love Alan Moore. <laughs> I just love, I mean, I'm a big Swamp Thing fan. I mean, how can I not love Alan Moore, yes. right? So yes. he actually has a film coming out too um, called The Show. You know what? I think it just actually came out So, um, yeah, so that's available now, too, that he wrote. 
I finally <laughs> read a book and I'm so proud of myself because I have been awful. You know, you would think with the pandemic and the lockdown, you know, I always pictured myself in this kind of situation as having a huge pile of books next to a fireplace and I just consume them all quickly. And that was just so far from the truth because instead I have like 3000 hours in Animal Crossing <laughs> and like a really <laughs> cool island. Um, and I paid off my raccoon debt and all of these things. And, and instead I just did and read. And so I finally picked up uh, Moon Lake by Joe Lansdale. And I loved it. I mean, it was hard to put down. You know, he's such a good storyteller. And I'm from Texas. And he is from East Texas. I'm from North Texas. He's from East. But East Texas has kind of its own culture. And he really incorporates East Texas culture into his books really well. But this is a mystery novel that also has a little bit of torture, death, and also the occult mixed in with like small town politics that go way too far. I highly recommend that book. I'm now starting on another book, um, The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. And I've heard nothing but good things about this book, that it will just make you lose sleep. You'll have to turn the lights on. So I'm just barely into that book, but I'm really excited to get through it because it's already started out just terrifying. And he's really good at painting the picture. So I'm excited to hopefully keep going and finish this book as well, because I've been on a book buying frenzy lately just to make myself keep reading them. I've also heard only great things about that book. So uh, it's been on my radar for a little while and I've been meaning to get a hold of it myself. So I'm definitely interested to see what your opinion of it is. You're a really big comic guy, right? Mm -hmm. Do you ever find that it's either comics or books? Because I find that I either binge comics and don't touch a book or I'm into books and I don't touch a comic. Like it's really hard for me to mix the two. I don't know why. Yeah, it's been a, a while. I've been doing nothing but comics here recently. I'm trying to remember the last novel I actually read. It's been that long. There's definitely not a mix uh, for me either. So I don't know if that's something normal for everyone, but I go straight comics and you go straight novels right now. So I guess it's probably more common than I realize. So it makes me feel better here. Okay, so let's dive into some news. First of all, just before we started this recording, it has been confirmed that Halloween Kills is not only going to be released in theaters on October 15th, but also on the Peacock streaming service. And that kind of surprised me like a lot, <laughs> if I'm being honest. It's actually going to be included. I thought it would have a big fee attached to it. And it's actually going to be included for people who subscribe to the Peacock Premium service, which is only five bucks a month with ads or $10 without ads. I mean, honestly, five bucks to watch Halloween Kills with some ads is amazing when we're so used to things getting released at such a high you know such a higher fee than just right. a premium service so matt how are you going to see the the film are you going to watch it on peacock for your five or ten bucks or are you going to go to theater as much as i say i would love to see it in the theater i'll probably end up paying the five dollars and watching it at home on peacock of all places i was just as surprised to hear that as you are that's really unreal i didn't see that coming whatsoever when i first heard it i completely thought that that was fake 
I did too. The website that I saw it on can be a little clickbaity. So I double verified it and Fangoria verified it. So I'm like, okay, Fangoria is, you know, hand to God. I trust them. So it's real and it's coming to Peacock, which I'm with you. I will probably watch from the comfort of my own home because I've just been so used to it, I guess. (laughs) But we'll see. (laughs) We'll see. The next bit of news that I want to talk about also came out today, and that is more casting for the Haunted Mansion reboot. Disney is rebooting the Haunted Mansion. The two new cast members are Rosario Dawson and Owen Wilson. So I'm actually really looking forward to that. Have you ever rode the Haunted Mansion ride? I grew up in Florida, so yes, I have many times. It is one of my favorite rides, despite the fact that I got stuck on it because someone got out of their little cart and I was stuck on it for 45 minutes staring at the ceiling. I couldn't see anything because the walls come up around you and those three heads were singing next to me the entire time the same song for 45 minutes and I thought that I was going to have a panic attack. <laughs> Despite that, I still wrote it right after that again. <laughs> of course. And did. and I will still see this movie. And that actually begins filming this fall, so it should be here pretty soon in Louisiana. So I'm excited about that. Uh, the other two cast members that are confirmed right now, Lakeith Stanfield, who was in Get Out. He was wonderful. And Tiffany Haddish, who uh, she is a voice right now, a major voice right now in Solar Opposites on Hulu. Awesome cast. I'm excited. Also with Haunted Mansion, I have to mention this. So anyone who knows me knows that I love Muppets. The Muppets actually announced a Haunted Mansion special for Disney Plus on October 8th. And I'm there. Like, I'm so excited for this. <laughs> There's so many awesome things coming out in October, and I cannot wait for the Muppets Haunted Mansion. I'll have to say that I'm way more excited for the Muppets version than I am about Rosario Dawson and Owen Wilson, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, right now I am too, but I am, I've been obsessed with Haunted Mansion for so long. I even have a singing ornament that goes on my Christmas tree uh, with the, the ghosts, even though they sing the same song that they sung to me for 45 minutes on the ride, I still have it and I still play it. You have a constant reminder. I do. I do. (laughs) So that is the news for Haunted Mansion. So next, I love Christmas horror. I have put out multiple lists about Christmas horror movies. Like I, I just, I probably annoy people with my obsession about it. Did you like Krampus? I loved Krampus. I'm a huge uh, Michael Doherty fan just in general. But yes, I'm also a huge Christmas horror buff. So come November, really, I'll just pull out all my Christmas themed horror films and and binge them. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So future show, make a note. Yes. They are actually releasing via Screen Factory. They're releasing the Naughty Cut release. And, you know, Krampus in theaters was PG-13. But apparently there was a lot darker, more horrific um, dialogue and scenes that they had to cut to keep that rating. And this is going to restore all of those scenes in the dialogue. I'm really excited about that. Even though it was slapped with the PG-13 rating, it went to some pretty dark places, which I love. You could tell it was borderline R already. And I'm excited to see what those extra scenes are going to add to the film for sure, because it was already pretty dark. The theatrical release is not going to be included on this special edition release. So you don't even get the option of watching one or the other. It is just straight 
Naughty Cut. And that comes out on November 16th. So it's just in time for your holiday horror binge. Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. So the last bit of news that we're going to dive into before we get into our main topic is that the Chucky series is coming to sci-fi. You know, I'm in a discord for Pink Buzz um, with you and and the rest of the, of the members and a few other people. And Johnny from Pink Buzz had posted the picture the other day that just came out. And he said, is this even real? <laughs> because <laughs> some people just don't know. And a Chucky series coming to sci-fi sounds as fake as Halloween Kills coming to Peacock. You know, it just <laughs> right. seems weird. So yes, that is definitely coming to sci-fi and it's coming soon. It's coming October 12th. So it'll actually be here before Halloween Kills. The show is bringing back a lot of fan favorites from the series, including... Who are you most excited about? You're going to say Kyle, aren't you? We haven't seen her like we have the rest, so... We have it. And so she is coming back. Christine Elise McCarthy. She's coming back as Kyle from part two. Part two is actually my favorite child's play. We interviewed her before the remake came out and it went viral because she had some very graphic things to say about the filmmakers of the remake. And she did not hold back on what they can do with themselves. It was a great interview Um, that she is back. And I'm sure based on that interview alone, she's really excited. Yeah, I would hope so. You know, we've seen Brad Dorf come back as Chucky. We've seen mm-hmm. Jennifer Tilly as Tiffany. We've seen Alex Vincent as Andy now come back in Cult of Chucky. I wasn't the biggest fan of uh, Cult of Chucky, to be honest, just because it threw the established rules from the previous films out the window with, spoiler alert, Chucky putting himself into all kinds of dolls at the same time, which was, I don't know where that came from, and they don't explain it whatsoever, so it was just bad. I'm hoping that we get some kind of explanation eventually, but I guess we'll see. I agree. I was not a fan of Cold of Chucky. I had a lot of different issues with it, including the one that you just brought up. That was just one of many, though. But um, (laughs) I watched the trailer for the Chucky Mm -hmm. series, and I was really surprised because it looks solid. Mm -hmm. So I'm very excited to see what they do with that. And again, it comes out on Sci-Fi on October 12th. And I believe we have all the latest information on our site. Okay, so let's get into our main topic here. And the main topic that we're going to talk about today is part three horror film sequels. I actually wrote an article that this episode is based off of, and we're not actually going to go through all the movies in the article. We just kind of picked, you know, I picked a few, but it was kind of written because you and I on Twitter would go back and forth about different part threes all the time. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to think of a new article series that I wanted to kick off. And I thought, okay, wait, what about really awesome part three horror sequels? So I started jotting some down and I realized, wow, there are so many cool ones out there that are just great and noteworthy. So I wanted to have you on for this because we just kind of geeked out about it, like completely. (laughs) I thought it would be fun (laughs) to talk to you about it and a fun topic to, to take on. Anyone who knows me, I think by now, and correct me if I'm wrong, associates me with Friday the 13th Part 3. This is very true. Yes, I have written about it (laughs) several times. I have gone on podcasts to talk about it several times. Like, I don't know what it is with that movie, but it just, it's me. This was released in 1982, just one year after Part 2 came out. 
And it actually takes place immediately. I mean, you even see part two bleed into pun there, I guess, but bleed into part three. And so it's just immediate. And the director Mm -hmm. is one of my favorite directors, Steve Miner. Um, He was responsible also for part two, um, House, Warlock, Lake Placid. He also did the Day of the Dead remake, which we'll talk about later. (laughs) And then also it has Richard Berker, who is my favorite Jason. And this is the last time Jason is human because he wakes up in part four in a morgue. So we get zombie Jason after this one. Before I go on about it for the next hour, (laughs) Matt, um, tell me what you think about this movie and what you like about it. And if there's something you don't like about it, which I'll probably edit out. Yeah, you won't have to do any editing because this is also just my favorite film in the franchise. I do like that it bleeds straight from part two into part three at the beginning, which technically makes this take place on Saturday the 14th because it's the very next day. Uh, I always go back and forth between Richard Brooker and Ted White as my favorite Jason, but I love Richard Brooker. Uh, Rest in peace. This one has two of my all-time favorite kills, and uh, I could go on and on about this film as well. So for your favorite kills... One, I have to assume, I just have to assume, and I hope that I'm right, is is Andy's crotch chop. Yes. How amazing is that kill? I mean, why is he walking on his hands to go get a beer? It makes zero sense. There's a lot of things in this movie that just doesn't make sense, but whatever. (laughs) Um, He's walking on his hands, and of course, here comes Jason with his machete, and he starts from the crotch and works his way down, up, however you want to call it and uh it is and then he leaves his mangled body up in the rafters for his pregnant girlfriend to find yes um so what's your second favorite my second favorite is the rick head crushing with the amazing little pop sound effect and you can clearly see the wire that his eyeball is on the 3d gag thing was a major major part of this film I love that kill so much. I laugh so hard every time I see it. And I've probably seen it a hundred times. It's like the obvious switch from actor to dummy. It's just so obvious and like literally in your face. And then the eyeball and the street. Oh my God, it's so great. It's actually not my second favorite, but it would be my third favorite for sure. My second favorite is the harpoon gun straight through the eye i mean it is just such a great kill and it's so brutal you know especially to such a sweet character for her Mm -hmm. to get that treatment i mean that was awful so um yeah so that would be my second well that kill is pretty significant because it's the first time that the hockey mask jason is unveiled and that's i mean it's a huge deal this many years later so that's that's a huge part of cinema it is, yes. Shelly gives him that mask. Yeah, the rest is horror and cinema history, and now one of the most iconic horror symbols in the world. So mm-hmm. that's pretty cool, and it all came from this movie. Yes. You know, I, I know that the one thing that people really complain about with this one, I even have some good friends who we, we go back and forth on this a lot, is, you know, the alleged or i guess implied um is more the word uh sexual assault of Mm -hmm. 
Chris, because, you know, a lot of, okay, I will be the first to admit things don't make sense. It is not in Jason's personality to carry someone to their bed or to not slaughter somebody. I'm not really going to debate all that here. That's like a whole show. Right. Okay. So just to wrap up Friday 13th, part three, the reason it made my list is because it's so iconic. And let's see here. Friday 13th Part 3 was made on a $2.2 million budget and brought in $36.7 million in the box office. So as we go through this, it'll be interesting to see which made the biggest box office impact. Next on the list is, is one that's also iconic from a huge franchise, and that is A Nightmare in Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, which came out in 1987. So this one is directed by Chuck Russell, who also did The Blob 1988. Um, He directed The Mask, which I actually didn't know that until I was getting show notes ready. And he's doing the Witchboard remake. I am a huge fan of, of Witchboard, one of those movies I throw on in the background a couple times a month. And uh, he's doing the remake, so I'm really excited about that. So this takes place one year after part two. And of course, part two uh, kind of, you know, it, it people now love it, but people mm-hmm. did hate it. So, yes. you know, it kind of has that. It's kind of the Friday the 13th part five of a Nightmare on Elm Street series, right? Yes, agreed. So part two took Freddy and... You know, he was possessing a a teenage boy and he came out into the real world. Like all of these things happen that kind of go against who Freddy Krueger is supposed to be and what his abilities are supposed to be. And I feel like part three is super, other than being like an amazing movie with super cool kills and, you know, special effects. I think it's pretty significant in the series because it gives us the Freddy Krueger that we know best. It gives us the punny, wisecracking, one-liner. Freddy kind of amuses himself while he kills people more than anything else. Like, he just gets a big kick out of it. And part two, you know, I think part two, to give that one credit, is he was really scary in it. Mm -hmm. You know, he was mean in it. And part three, we kind of start to see really inventive kills that kind of go... Now, part two also did. I mean, you think about the the gym coach getting whipped, you know? I mean, okay... (laughs) Part three had these really kind of more elaborate kills. And you think about the puppet with the tendons coming out and, you know, and and he's getting walked off the roof and it's just, they were so good. But I really think it, it gave us the franchise that we know today. Agreed. Yeah. Part two, Freddy was, I think the most menacing of the entire franchise by far. And they were still, I mean, it wasn't a completely serious movie, but they still had a way more serious tone than where three took basically the entire franchise with the whole dream saga that they went into from the starting with this film. Speaking of the marionette kill, that's definitely my favorite one. Philip getting walked off of the building. The stop motion clay marionette that they used was amazing to me. The first time I ever saw that movie. And it still kind of freaks me out a little bit. I don't know why, but this one's pretty significant in the fact that it's the first time we hear of Weston Hills and Hypnosil, which plays a big role in making Freddy versus Jason work down the road. It was really great seeing uh, Heather Langenkamp and John Saxon back to reprise their roles. Ken Cade debuts in this movie, and I think he's probably my favorite character throughout the entire franchise because he can pull out the one-liners just as good as Freddy can. Except I think Freddy laughs at his jokes, his own jokes a little bit. Like, it's kind of like you said, he likes to amuse himself more than anyone else. 
and that classic doc and Yes, yes. I mean, I can still listen to it today. And you just you feel like you're back in the late 80s, you know, and I love it. And I love the music video they did for it. Right. It was great. I also agree with that kill to see the tendon like right now I'm cringing as I'm saying Mm -hmm. this to see the tendons come out like that. This was made in 1987. And for a part three of of a slasher franchise, And still today, I can barely watch it. And I've seen everything and I can barely watch it because it just makes me feel this pain, you know, so (laughs) it was very well done. And I'm with you there. Watching them stretch like that. So this one was made on a $4.5 million budget. And so far between this one and Friday 13th Part 3, it comes in at $44.8 million in the box office. So it did better than Friday 13th Part 3. But let's see uh, if the next one is going to take it down or not. I think the other movie a lot of people associate me with, and rightfully so, is The Exorcist 3. I will talk to you about The Exorcist 3 until you make me stop. <laughs> it is just, uh, oh my God, it's just so good. And it really is the sequel that The Exorcist deserved. Mm-hmm. While I'm not saying that it's better than The Exorcist, because The Exorcist is such an iconic movie, and mm-hmm. it really did a lot for the horror genre, I will say that I watched part three more than I revisit the first one. Part three, I love the dialogue. I think the dialogue, especially with George C. Scott, you know, he is just such a storyteller and he has such a way of prolonging his dialogue, but it's so interesting. I mean, he talks about a fish for probably seven minutes and you're just hanging on every word about this fish in this bathtub, you know, and it's just because he's that charming and he he's that well-spoken that you just want to hear the end of it. And then, of course, who else is in it? We get Brad Dorif as the Gemini killer. Oh my God, how terrifying is he? Even today, how terrifying is he? It might be my favorite role of his. He is ridiculously frightening in this film. So this was directed by William Peter Blatty, and he is actually the author of the Exorcist novel. And he was the writer for the Exorcist TV series, which, by the way, was one of the best horror TV series I've ever seen. And I'm still mad that they took that off the air. Moving on, because I'll get mad if I keep thinking about it. <laughs> it's just so good. Yeah, so, you know, he really knows his exorcist because he is the one who created it. Man, he does a great job of keeping that suspense and that horror. You know, what's really scary about this is you mentioned Brad Dorff's role being so terrifying as the killer. And it's actually said that Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite movie was this because he identified with the Gemini killer. That's kind of scary. That is really scary, but he's got pretty good taste in film. (laughs) Pun intended. Yes. (laughs) No, but um, but yeah, you know, and he also based the Gemini killer on the Zodiac killer, who was a fan of the first movie. And not to mention the jump scares. This film has probably one of the most iconic jump scares, in my opinion. The one with the nurse in the hallway with the huge surgical cutting tool. I know it's coming every time, and it still makes me jump every time. Just the music, everything about it is perfect. I love that scene so much. This whole film is masterful, and I like it better than the original. I watch it more, so I guess that says a lot. I'm more entertained by it. I don't know. (laughs) I'm more scared by it. Also, along with that 
jump scare, the old lady, she's on the freaking ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh my God, she's just crawling around and mm-hmm. nobody even notices. I mean, it makes my heart race every single time. And then also the older lady at the end when she goes to his house mm-hmm. and she's just sitting there so quiet and calm and oh man that was just so creepy it really was it was so this movie actually scares me more than the exorcist same i agree i'm not saying i dislike the original by any means it is also a masterful film and like you said earlier, it did so much for the horror genre as a whole. Um, so I'm not trying to throw any hate to the original. No one get mad at me. And if so, directed at Pink Buzz, not here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this one on $11 million budget brought in $44 million. So, so far, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 is still the number one in the box office. You do kind of have to wonder if Exorcist Part 2 wasn't made would this one have done better? Because that was just... I think so, for sure. I think I've watched that movie partway through once and wanted nothing to do with it ever again, and I have not. It was that bad. I didn't think it was going to be as bad as what people said, and then I watched it, and okay, I get it. I really kind of think that that had to have hurt the box office because people people remembered. Yes, Another little uh, interesting fact before we move on to the next one is that little dream sequence where it has all the angels that he's walking through. It has cameos by Samuel L. Jackson, which has to be his shortest role ever. Fabio is there. Gotta have those golden locks for the angels. And Patrick Ewing, a basketball player, all just randomly inserted as angels into that scene. I wish I could find out why were these three men in the same room and just used as cameos. It's such an awkward place to be for these three people. It always cracks me up every time that scene pops up. It even gets pretty creepy, you know, with the kid coming up and things like that. So it's not like it's a funny scene or anything or right but it's just (laughs) yeah it's unexpected (laughs) i'm glad you brought that up because that (laughs) needed to be mentioned so moving right along is one of my favorite movies one of my favorite franchises one of my favorite trilogies on and on army of darkness in 1992 and of course the director needs no introduction to anyone who knows anything about evil dead but sam raimi The Evil Dead trilogy is one that if someone were to ask me, what is your favorite movie? Depending on my mood, I would say any of them, you know, like it just kind of goes back and forth because my God, the first one is just so good. The second one Mm -hmm. is just so good. And Army of Darkness, (laughs) I mean, it's a blast. And I love the stop motion that they use. I, I just love so much. I love the setting. It was really unexpected that he goes to the Middle Ages. But yeah, so I just I love this one. And of course, it had to make our list. Everyone talks about Star Wars as the beloved trilogy. But this is my beloved trilogy. All horror fans worship Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell and the ground that they walk on. I know they started the comedic aspect with with Evil Dead 2, but this one just goes completely for it and almost tunes down the horror completely. 
of course it's there, but this one is medieval Three Stooges, like, completely. That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> it really <Yeah>. is, yes. <laughs> there were parts of the first two that actually got to me. I cannot say that for this one, even though I love it. I But I cannot say that, oh, there was that one part that kind of shook me a little bit because it doesn't exist, though. So. I remember when I was really, really young, I used to go to my friend Mark's house and his older brother Ricky would always have the first one on. And that scene where she gets stabbed in the ankle with the pencil, it took me forever to not have nightmares about that. It took me years and years. I don't know why, but that scene haunted me for so long. There were scenes in part two that still kind of get to me today, even though, I mean, it's just, it's such a creepy movie. And even though it's funny, like, it's just, it still just has that horror element to it. And, you know, like you Mm -hmm. said on this one, it just, it's so, it's like a live action cartoon. It's just so over the top. And, you know, the other day, Bruce Campbell tweeted out about the film's original ending. And it seemed like from his tweet that that wasn't something that he really agreed with. But in the original, Universal thought that it was too depressing. But apparently he returns to an apocalyptic future where humans have been destroyed. And so, of course, that was changed. But what do you think about that original ending? The version that I have is the the bootleg edition, which doesn't even have the reshot ending anywhere on it. It just goes straight into the original ending. So you've seen it? Yes. It's basically he screws up the words that the wizard tells him to do to get back to his own time. And typical Ash Williams, he's not the smartest hero in the world. As we all know, he screws up the chant that he has to do again, and he wakes up in this cave with like a full Jesus beard. And I thought it was a joke to the resurrection of Jesus because he wakes up in this cave and he's very Jesus out. He makes his way out of the cave and just the world has been decimated. It doesn't really go into detail if it's like nuclear or anything, but the world is over as he knew it. But I actually prefer the reshot ending. And I'm usually a fan of downer endings. I like happier endings. So it's probably would not shock me if I actually saw the original ending that I would prefer the reshot one as well. And also, it's the one that I've seen a million times and Mm -hmm. the one that I love and the one that I can quote. So some bias there seeing it, I think, in 2021. Yes. I think even if I preferred the original ending, we don't get Hail to the King from the original ending. So I think that alone makes makes the reshoot worth it. What an iconic moment that would have been missed. We get so many iconic lines from this film. Groovy, this is my boomstick. Mm-hmm. It's not iconic per se, but I love when he uh, tells Arthur that his shoelaces are untied. <laughs> He's in a full suit of armor. There are no shoelaces to speak of. <laughs> so, And the fact that he looks down anyway to see if his laces are untied, just that scene is so absurd and hilarious. The trilogy wrapped up in 1992, but of course that was not the last time we saw we saw Ash. Ash versus Evil Dead, by the way, is another one, just like The Exorcist TV show that I am so mad they ended because it was so good. I mean, there it were so was. many episodes where I just had tears coming down my face because it was <laughs> so funny. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, right now they're actually making an Evil Dead game. 
I believe it's called Evil Dead the Game. That's coming out next year. And then they're also making Evil Dead Rise. So, um, which is going to be a sequel. And Bruce Campbell, I believe, is not going to be in it. And if he is in it, he'll have a small role maybe, but I'm pretty sure he's not going to be in it. So it's actually going to focus on two sisters who have to take on Deadites. And it's not supposed to have anything to do with the remake either, right? No. Nope. Yeah, I didn't think so. Yeah. So I'm interested to see what they do with that. Agreed. Nothing will ever top this trilogy, though. So this one had the same budget as Exorcist 3 with $11 million, but only came in at $21.5 million in the box office, which is the lowest so far on the list. So unfortunate. Very. Poor Sam. Uh, 1992 was not ready for medieval <laughs> Bruce, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree. The actor that played the pit bitch, as she's called, when Ash gets thrown into the pit by Arthur at the beginning, the second deadite that he fights Mm -hmm. is played by the same person that played Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and Ghostbusters. Not a lot of people know that. That's very cool. I actually didn't know that. A little bit of trivia. And also, uh, I'm a big Bill Mosley fan, so I always have to give him credit for riding very difficultly on a horse with a deadite mask on as one of Evil Ash's sergeants. Not a lot of people know that he was in that film either. That is very true. I actually didn't know that until just recent years. I can't remember mm-hmm. when I read that, but I was thinking, that's not right. He wasn't in that. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that. So let's move on to one of the most iconic zombie films ever made and from the most iconic zombie franchise ever created from the most iconic zombie director that's ever lived. And that is Day of the Dead in 1985. I'm a big fan of the first three, and this one takes on a totally different tone than dawn of the dead i've always felt like it's just darker you know it is very gritty and as much as i love it i have to be in a certain mindset and mood to sit down and watch it it's very dark it really is and you get some amazing effects you know there are some cheesy moments i'm gonna (laughs) i'll say that but (laughs) there's some cheese in there but i mean you have tom savini in his heyday Mm -hmm. you have greg nicotero You have Howard Berger. Like, you have these guys who went on to perfect zombies as we know it. And, of course, you know, Tom Savini, who's the master. To have that behind this film, I think, really makes it, if I'm being honest. I mean, you know, of course, Romero has a lot of credit there, but the effects are just really memorable. I think Savini calls this his, his masterpiece. I could see that. You know, back then, everything that Tom Savini touched... Um, FX wise, it just it turned into gold, you know, stuff that even today, people in the industry look back at and say, I want to do it like that. Like that is how you do practical effects. And this is a great example of that. So I, I can absolutely see why he would make that claim out of Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead, the first three which one is your favorite to watch? Not the one you think is the best, but the one that you like to watch. I go back and forth between the original and Dawn. This is probably my least watched, but for the same reason that you just mentioned, like it is such a tone shift 
it just gets under your skin. It's almost depressing to watch it, it how just demoralized the cast of characters gets with each other. It just builds and builds into the crescendo of, of what it turns into. I think that that's probably how it would really go down. They just drive each other crazy and, and it just turns into a civil war basically in that bunker between the scientists and the military it's a hard one to watch just randomly like i'm not like hey let's just throw day of the dead on for for (laughs) (laughs) yes i have to completely agree with that one huge highlight for me in this film is bub Yes. I love him. And he is the most lovable zombie, I think. I mean, especially definitely in the Romero because, you know, no other zombies are like this, right? Bub, he he has that personality and he's very childlike at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the one thing with him, I remember when I first watched it is having that feeling of oh god don't let something happen to him kind of like when you watch and there's a cute dog there's a cute kid there's a pregnant woman Mm -hmm. he kind of goes into that category to where you're like just protect bub just let him be okay because he you're you need him you you need that little ray of sunshine in this film because like you said or you know like we said it's a dark one there was such a childlike almost animalistic innocence to the character of Bub that, you know, it's a dark film when the lightest moments of the film come from a zombie. You know, credit to Romero there and the effects team because that's exactly what they were going for and that's exactly Mm -hmm. what we get. So, you know, I mentioned briefly earlier when we talked about Steve Miner that it was remade in 2008 and along with Steve Miner directing, the writer was Jeffrey Riddick. He created the final Destination franchise. It had two really good names behind it, both of which I respect Yet, (laughs) I have never wanted to revisit it past. I believe I actually saw this one in theater and um, I've never revisited it. So I'm actually very surprised that it made it to a theater. (laughs) You know, Day of the Dead, it gives you one of the most iconic kills since the first one. Talking about roads. Yes. The most copied zombie death ever. Yes. You know, and then you have Bub at the end and he just salutes and i mean what a great moment oh for sure i agree this movie only had a four million dollar budget i feel like most that one on the effects (laughs) (laughs) and it came in at 34 million so it does not unseat i'm right elm street part three okay so you know the next one i put on my list and i felt like uh, I had to justify myself putting it on the list. This one and another one, I felt like I had to justify just so people wouldn't come yelling at me. But it belongs on the list, I think. And that is Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, which was released in 1982 and directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, who also directed Fright Night 2, the 1990 It TV miniseries. And he wrote Amityville 2. Um, which I'm a big Amityville fan, even though that one was the most uh, depressing <laughs> of the series, yes, but yes, still. Yes, very much was. <laughs> over the years, we hear over and over again about part three, you either love it or hate it. I, I don't really know anyone who says, oh, you know, I'm kind of in the middle because it's just 
people are very opinionated about this movie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it kind of needs to be mentioned that it was intended to be the way that it is because it was supposed to kick off a Halloween-themed anthology. Michael Myers' story had wrapped up after Halloween 2, and now they were going into this direction, which was about, you know, witchcraft and a lot of other things. But um, And then they were going to keep going in this anthology series and make these different films based around Halloween. And so there is a reason why Michael isn't in it. I know people say he is because he was on TV in a bar, but y'all know what we mean. (laughs) He wasn't in it. Do you think if this was a standalone film, Halloween themed film, but Halloween, the, the holiday, not Halloween as we know it, themed film that came out in 1982 as, you know, just on its own. Do you think that would have done better by fans? Do you think that there wouldn't have been this whole hate relationship this whole time? For sure. It is a truly solid film on its own. If they would have just named this Season of the Witch, there would be none of that hate. Everything negative I've ever seen about this film is only because Michael's not in it. No one else can ever tell me, what didn't you like about it? Oh, Michael's not in it. Well, that's really, that's all you have? Did you watch the movie and not enjoy it? Like, I don't understand and never have the hatred for this film. But I think nowadays I see more people that enjoy it than I do hating on it. So I'm glad that we're finally there. Me too. And, you know, I really feel like just in the last few years, people have kind of come around more. And a lot of it has to do with the mass getting so popular. I mean, these three masks are freaking awesome, right? Right. And so they've been duplicated, they've been sold. And so, you know, of course, the theme song, it's getting close to Halloween, you start seeing that theme song posted everywhere on social media. Mm -hmm. But kind of to your point, when you ask people, why don't you like this movie? The other reasons I've heard is that, you know, it's really cheesy. And I'm like, well, what are your other 80s horror movies? Because surely it's on the same level as Halloween three. I mean, yes. Okay, so with Halloween 3, it was made on a $2.5 million budget, and it only brought in $14.4 million, which we are not shocked. Nope. Nope, not at all. So I believe that, uh, yeah, this one's the lowest one on the list. It takes the place of Army of Darkness at the bottom. Okay, so we have two more movies on our list, and the last two movies are two of my favorite movies ever. (laughs) This next one I really had to defend, I felt, also, but it is Jaws 3, or Jaws 3D, which was released in 1983. It was directed by Joe Alves. His only director's credit was this film, (laughs) so I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, I mean, I can guess, but but he did design the sharks for the original Jaws. So, I mean, he has that under his belt, right? So in Jaws 3, it moves away from Amity Island and it takes you from New England down to Florida at SeaWorld. Roy Schneider was not in this and reportedly he actually laughed at the idea of doing it and he took another film at the same time this was filming just so he could definitely not take it and not be available. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it actually follows his two sons who are now adults and they are at SeaWorld and they just happen to be hunted down by um, a mama shark after her baby dies in the park so they have horrible luck and you would think they would get more inland jobs by now but they have not learned yet 
this is where it really starts going off the rails and figuring in that the shark can just find the Brody family no matter where they're located. <laughs> I mean, without that kind of logic, we wouldn't get part four, which is a masterpiece in itself. So I'm glad they started that with this film. And I absolutely love this film because of how bad it is. It really so. is. <laughs> You know, it, it has some star power behind it. Well, you know, back then they weren't as huge stars, but uh, Leah Thompson and it had Dennis Quaid. And, you know, one little fun fact about that is Dennis Quaid said in an interview a few years back that he was on a lot of cocaine in every single scene <laughs> <laughs> that he filmed for this movie. I could see that. <laughs> he said yes. out of all his films, this was the one where he used the most. And then another little fun fact is it was nominated for a lot of Golden Raspberry Awards in 1983. <laughs> and I think that the saddest nomination that it got was for uh, newcomers Cindy and Sandy, which are the two dolphins. Who nominates dolphins, real dolphins, for Golden Raspberry for worse newcomers? Right? They saved Dennis Quaid's life by fighting a giant shark. Shame on you, Raspberry Academy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that fact until I started making notes, and now it's probably my favorite fact ever about Jaws 3. Uh, so the other Golden Raspberry Awards were for Worst Picture, Director, Supporting Actor for Lou Gossett Jr., Screenplay, and then, of course, The Dolphins. But I have to say, they didn't win slash lose i'm not really sure how you word that one uh any raspberry awards so apparently they weren't the worst <laughs> <laughs> jumping back to friday three we wouldn't have jaws 3d without friday three because it kicked off this whole 80s 3d resurgence and thank goodness for that because we wouldn't have this masterpiece without it Absolutely. Same, which this one isn't on our list this time, but uh, same for Amity. Amityville 3D. 3D because they all use the same technology. So mm -hmm. when they released Friday the 13th Part 3, nobody actually knew how to use that technology at the movie theaters. So they actually had to, the studio had to send Paramount, had to send all of the projectionist instructions on how to use all of this technology. And it was a huge ordeal. So I guess while you already have the money invested, why not jump in and, you know, yeah. they already know how to use it by then. So take advantage of it, right? Yes, for sure. The whole back end of this film is just the worst slash best ending to a movie ever. And I'm just going to break it down scene by scene because it is, it's just, it's glorious and I have to mention it. So my favorite kill in the film, even though there's not really any remarkable kills in this movie, unfortunately, but I'd say my favorite is when uh, Fitzroyce lures Mama Shark into the pipe and well, does he drown in, in its mouth or is he crushed to death? Is it a combination of the two, maybe? So he dies and is seemingly stuck in the shark's mouth. The shark then off screen proceeds to somehow swim backwards out of a pipe, which we know that's not happening. After that, <laughs> it has a fight with the amazing dolphins. And then that 3D moment where it is the slow motion creep towards breaking that glass is so hilarious. 
Dennis Quaid's face. It looks like he just remembered where he stored his Coke stash <laughs> because it, the look on his face is priceless. And it draws that floating shark up to breaking the glass for so long. I feel like I'm sitting there for minutes watching this shark just float there. So it finally breaks the glass, which is, come on, that's got to be everyone's favorite 3D moment. It is mine. So it proceeds to eat someone else entirely and then still have this guy that he ate before the person he just ate stuck in its mouth somehow still. The logic was thrown out the window completely for the end of this film. It it was almost like they just wanted to be done. You know, what's really funny about this movie and great breakdown, by the way, of the ending, like as you're talking, I'm picturing everything happening. And yes, that scene is just so good when he breaks the con- or when she breaks the control room window. It's just so yes. good. But what I love about this movie is how absurd it is underwater because they have, you know, it, it's just kind of like this little cove that they have, right? Because they're SeaWorld. It's not like they own the ocean or anything. They just have a cove and somehow way deep underwater they have all of these elaborate tunnels that people Mm -hmm. can actually walk through and see underwater when they pan out and they show you the tubes like you just think how did how did y'all build this underwater like how are they so big i mean it it would just be like a a a marvel i mean it'd be amazing to see you know but and then of course they have an underwater control room of all things (laughs) Uh, with a giant glass window because, you know, they have to be able to see everything. But one of my favorite things about this movie is the underwater cafe, because not only do they have tunnels and a control room underwater, but you can sit in a cafe with a nice piano playing and nice food and you're, you're underwater. And I think my favorite moment entirely of the film is the very last shot all these people just got murdered by a giant shark. Uh, you barely just escaped with your life. You're probably going to lose your job because SeaWorld is wrecked. And they just pop out of the water and do this like breakfast club celebration with the two dolphins jumping out of the air at the same time. And it just freeze frames. Oh my God. Yes. I crack up hysterically every time. It is such a happy go lucky ending immediately after the the rampage. You're right. So this movie, it had an $18 million budget, and this is our biggest box office holder on our list at 88 million. People were not tired of Jaws yet at this point. I think part four, it hit them a little bit, but at this point they were still into it. Yes. Because our next movie didn't have a theatrical release. So that one's our winner. Good job, Sandy and Cindy. (laughs) That's right. Take that raspberries. Exactly. So our last movie that we're going to talk about is Sleepaway Camp 3 Teenage Wasteland, which was released in 1989 and it was directed by Sleepaway Camp 2 director, Michael A. Simpson. So these two movies are my probably my top five favorite slashers. Definitely part two, maybe part three is in my top 10, but I loved part two. I love part three. The kills are just so fun and inventive. Yeah. What's really notable about these two movies is that Pamela Springsteen, 
who is the sister of Bruce. Y'all ever heard of him? Uh, she replaces Felisa Rose as Angela. And I'm not even mad about it. I love her as Angela because she is so peppy and funny. She kills people <laughs> in the most horrific ways, but she has like this code of ethics that she lives by. If you are a drug user, if you are a fornicator, if you're any of these things, she's going to murder you in a horrible way because you don't deserve to live anymore. She's going to stick your head down the toilet. She is going to run over your head with a lawnmower. Lawnmower. I love Pamela as Angela. And I think that she deserves way more credit as a really great slasher. This and the uh, part two were, I think they were filmed at the exact same time, weren't they? Uh, Back to back? I'm actually not sure. I know they were filmed at the same place, at the same uh, YMCA grounds, but I'm not sure if they were filmed at the same time or back to back. I'm pretty sure I, I heard or read somewhere that they were filmed practically back to back at the same time. But yes, I agree wholeheartedly. Pamela definitely deserves more credit. Uh, I don't hear anyone ever talking about her. It's always uh, Felissa that gets all of the credit for this franchise. And I think that's because not many people watched the sequels, to tell you the truth. I think Snowboy is probably one of my favorite side characters of any horror film, just because of how ridiculous his character is. (laughs) The dialogue is great. Yes. And we have to mention how amazing the Herman and Jan sex scene is. (laughs) (laughs) That is the scariest part (laughs) of this whole franchise. I mean, it is... (laughs) Oh, man, it it is. uh, It'll stay with you. That is for sure. Uh, A very creepy old man. What else was he in? He was he was Clyde and Bonnie and Clyde. Yes. And then he was in Scrooge as the man who froze to death, the homeless man who froze to death. But yeah, him getting it on with a barely legal camp goer (laughs) in a tent uh, was just way too much. They cut these films so bad and left that scene in there without any issues whatsoever. It just blows my mind how that was okay to stay. But like the scenes that were cut weren't even that bad by any means. And I'd love to know what the MPAA was clearly not thinking while uh, reviewing this film. Yeah, I I have to totally agree with you there completely. And I feel like this movie is going to be maybe the least seen um, by some of our listeners. Mm -hmm. If you haven't seen it, I mean, if you see part one, it's really nothing like part one. It is a very, these two movies are very comical and and Angela is very much not silent. Um, She is very witty and cheerful and she's wonderful. So definitely have to recommend that one as a slasher. Okay. Is there anything else you want to mention about any of our films? I think we got it. Well, Matt, thank you for joining on this first episode of the Horror Geek Podcast Relaunch. I really appreciate it. And it was fun to talk about all of these movies. And for everyone listening, thank you for joining us. Please be sure to follow or subscribe if you enjoyed the show. And you can connect with us on social media at Horror Geek Life. And I am Horror Geek Mel on Instagram. And Pink Buzz, once again, can be found on YouTube under Graphic Vandalism. Until next week.